I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no hope of box office success. This is Flying Saucer Movie Night. It's movie time, as I watch things so you don't have to, unless you already have, in which case, I'm kind of sorry. I've got two great films to cover for you today, starting with the 1956 British picture, Supersonic Saucer. So, Supersonic Saucer is a 1956 picture from Britain and clocks in at a touch under 50 minutes. So it's not a feature film, but it's not a short either. Um, Somebody more familiar with British cinema from the 50s can uh, get in touch and tell me what the venue for this probably would have been. It begins with a group of school children in very British 1950s school uniforms at an observatory looking at Venus and Mars. One boy, Rodney, sees a saucer. A flying saucer! Oh, Rodney, this is neither the time nor the place for silly remarks. Come along, Anne, dear. I really did see a flying saucer. Rubbish. You've been reading too much science fiction. Where are you going for the holes? Mars? Rubbish. You've been reading science fiction. So Rodney sees a flying saucer. Nobody believes him. His little buddy, you know, doesn't believe him either. And then we we move to the school and there are two girls who have to stay behind at school over the holes or vacation or break, as we might call it here in the States. Oh, I do wish my mother and father weren't in Norway. Yes, and I wish mine weren't at the other end of the world. Fancy having to stay at school for the holidays. Disgusting. How come we don't know where the second girl's parents are more specifically than the other end of the world? Maybe that'll be part of the plot. Spoiler, it's not part of the plot. The little girl saying, disgusting, may need to be a recurring gag here. Not sure how, but it seems worthwhile, right up there with unprecedented financial opportunity. The girls' names are Greta and Sumac. Yes, like Poison Sumac. No, I don't know why either. It sort of gets explained later on. Greta is the one whose parents are in Norway, and Sumacs are at the other end of the world. Now, Rodney is staying behind as well because his father is the headmaster of the school. Once everyone else is gone, the students help the headmaster put the school trophies in the safe. Yes, in a safe. Apparently, they are not made of chromed plastic like all the trophies I got at school. So as they're putting the apparently valuable trophies in the school safe, the scene shifts or changes to a shifty-looking man on a bicycle-sized trike. Um, It's kind of weird-looking. He's a custodian. He's a custodian at the school, and he saw the valuable trophies being safeguarded. He looks kind of like James Joyce, and he stops at a phone box where sinister plans are made. Hello. Hello, is that number one? Yes, number one speaking. This is number 40. There's some valuable stuff in the safe up at the school, number one. Worth a packet. Silver trophies, cups and things. Okay. Let me have a detailed drawing of the place. The boys will be along during the week. 
It's Dial-A-Heist. Number one sounds like a pretty efficient guy. So at this point, we're four minutes into the film. We have three distinct elements. A boy sees a flying saucer, and then that boy, Rodney, along with Greta and Sumac, are stuck at school over the holidays. That's thing number two. And then there is a plan to rob the school. So there's three sort of sort of things going on. Now, Rodney, um, despite not being appreciably older than the girls, are um, he's put in charge of them. And he's deliciously condescending in the way that only awkward, brainy kids can be. Look, I'm supposed to look after you two, but I shall really be too busy with my scientific work. I'm going to become a cosmic scientist. Of course, you wouldn't understand what that meant. Now, what are your names again? My name is Greta. And I am called Sumac. That's a funny name. Mm. South American. Oh, I see. Foreigners. There's also another little boy um, who's younger than everybody named Adolphus. And he's dressed up in some sort of – it's an astronaut costume. Um, but but think, think of it in terms of what a 1950s British kids illustrated storybook might imagine an astronaut's costume to be. Whatever is that? I'm a man from outer space. Nonsense, Adolphus. Spacemen aren't like that at all. Go away, Adolphus. Nobody seems to like Adolphus. Sad. I think he's I think he's cool. So the girls go outside to play and they hear a strange noise. And then they see something strange. Better. What's that noise? Whatever can it be? Yes, it is indeed a flying saucer. A at first in the script here, I wrote a poorly animated flying saucer, but but actually, it's not. It's actually pretty good. Um, and if you're familiar with with British television, for example, that was recorded on videotape back in the day, um, 1960s dot black and white Doctor Who, things like that, you, you sort of have an idea sort of in your mind of what those black and white special effects might look like. Uh, this being made, I believe, on film, it's it's a lot sort of higher quality. Now, it's, it's not, you know, gee whiz, cool, you know, CGI sort of thing. But for 1956, dang, it's a, it's a pretty nifty looking flying saucer. The saucer lands on a tree and it unfolds into... I don't know how to describe it. Um, the best I could come up with is a toddler-sized doll wearing a sheet with some uh, googly eyes. Because the movie is only 49 minutes long, we learn what <laughs> this being is very quickly, thanks to Greta. How very odd. I feel as though I'm hearing what it's thinking. Telepathic saucer communication. It's, it's like somebody's been reading their, their contact ebooks very carefully. Now, this entire time, we've got Greta and Sumac sort of, you know, meeting this saucer creature. We, we're cutting to shots of the Crooked Custodian, or number 40, as he's known, fixing a flat tire on his big boy tricycle for some reason. Um, it seems kind of like a time-wasting thing a little bit, but I'm not sure... 
I'm not sure why they would need to waste time in a movie that's only 49 minutes long. So the girls take the being to Rodney and the being gets a name because Rodney is a big science guy. So this is where its name comes from. me, it looks more like amoeba proteus than amoeba dubia or amoeba gorgolia. Yes, let's call it that. Amoeba. That's a nice name. Would you like to be called amoeba? So, because it looks vaguely like an amoeba, it doesn't. Uh, it gets the name Meba, which is pretty cool. Now, Meba doesn't like Rodney and just wants to communicate with Greta and Sumac, which, you know, at 10 minutes into the film, I fully agree with Meba. Rodney is, is, is kind of a dink, and uh, Greta and Sumac seem, uh, seem pretty chill. So Meba tells um, everybody through mind control, and well, not mind control, mind transmission, all about Venus. And we, we go to Venus, uh, sort of an animated backdrop, and it's, uh, it's, it's complete with, with many creatures like Meba, sort of saucer things that turn into people things, all inhabiting a rocky, foggy landscape. Yes, that's right. Meba comes from Venus. When the little inhabitants of Venus are very young, like Meba, they're taught to turn into flying saucers. Meba wasn't very good at it at first. He could spin all right, but somehow he couldn't get the trick of turning into a saucer. His little friends made fun of him as one by one they learned to fly and left Meba still trying. After they'd all gone, he tried and tried and tried until at last it suddenly happened. Meba was so pleased with himself that he just flew and flew, having such a wonderful time that he quite lost himself. But when at last he found himself again, he was very near the earth and he decided he would come and have a look around here. And here he is. So this is really interesting to me. Uh, the saucers are actually living creatures. Meba is himself a flying saucer. He's not a flying saucer occupant. He's not a flying saucer pilot. He is a flying saucer. And there have been some over the decades who have speculated that what people are seeing in the sky are not craft at all, but rather living creatures inhabiting our atmosphere or outer space or both. Uh, Trevor James Constable is one author who sort of explored this motion, motion, notion. And you may also, if you're the right age, remember the rods phenomenon from back in the 90s. Actually, I think we're probably going to need to do a Trevor James Constable episode at some point, or a rods episode, or maybe just a biological creatures in the sky episode. Now, Meba plans to stay for a couple days to rest up before going back to Venus. The kids sit down to dinner and sort of out loud do what most kids do and wish they had a bunch of desserts. Meba overhears this. He turns into a saucer and zooms around town collecting a bunch of sweets for the kids. So this is sort of how Meba is personality-wise. Um, I'm showing my age here, maybe. I don't know if these books are still around for kids, but Meba is kind of the same 
broad characterization in some ways as uh, Amelia Bedelia, sort of hearing things and, and sort of interpreting them very literally and with, with hilarious results. Um, I, oh gosh, I might be dating myself with the Amelia Bedelia reference. Um, if you have heard of Amelia Bedelia, uh, let me know. Um, let me make sure it's not some sort of Mandela effect thing where I'm the only one who remembers this character from children's storybooks. Anyway, um, Miba hears the kids say, it's cold. I wish there was a fire. And Miba just starts a fire. Um, and not in the fireplace, just I think some drapes catch on fire. The kids eventually go to sleep. But before they go to sleep, the girls are talking about how wonderful it would be to have a million pounds. Miba hears this and flies off. And as I'm watching this, I'm, I'm sort of assuming he'll be trying to round up money for the kids. Now, the action then shifts to the gang going over the map of the school. The custodian knows that the adults are going to be out of town, off in London um, the following evening, and that would be the best time to strike. And, and while that's going on, and as the kids are asleep, as I expected, Miba flies into town, finds a bank, and breaks into the vault, hoovering up vast amounts of cash to take back to the girls at the school. And when they wake up, the girls are shocked at the theft, but decide that it, it's actually kind of understandable. Oh, Meba. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Now he's very upset. He thought he was doing us a kindness. And after all, coming from Venus, I suppose he wasn't really to know that robbing a bank is a very wicked thing to do. He'll have to take the money back, I'm afraid. That's all there is to it. Yes, and what's more, he'll have to take it back at once. We quickly jump over to the bank manager yelling at somebody about the missing money and being concerned about it. And then back at the school, Miba tells the kids telepathically that he can't take the money back until nighttime because it's too dangerous in daylight because the bank manager and everybody else is all just right there. So the kids put the money in the safe along with all the trophies and the silver and everything for safekeeping. And the sinister custodian sees them through the window, witnessing not only the money going into the safe, but Miba. Business, as they say, is about to pick up. He rushes back to bad guy headquarters and on his big boy trike. And um, the problem is number 40 has a difficult time explaining everything to uh, to number one. The, the alien, the money... Number 40 sounds kind of weird. So later that evening, Miba scoops up all the money and whisks it back to the bank. So we, we know right away that uh, that number 40 um, is going to be in some trouble because the money that he promised number one would be there is not going to be there. So that evening, the robbers break in and discover to their chagrin that the money is no longer in the safe. They report back to number one, who is not pleased. Not good enough, number 40. Not good enough at all. It was full of money, sir. No doubt. The money's been spirited away by that flying saucer thing. The one that looks like a rabbit or something. That settles it. You are mad and you are fired. Get out of my sight! That's sad for number 40. You hate to see a low-ranking crook out of a job like that. And do people actually get fired from organized crime operations? You'd think there'd be some sort of requirement to sort of harshly eliminate anyone no longer deemed necessary so they don't talk to the authorities. I mean, this is a, a, a kid's film, but still, number 40 just gets fired. So number 40 and another thug, 
I think it's number 13, have a fairly dumb idea about how to proceed after number 40's firing. If only I could kidnap that flying saucer thing, there's no knowing how much money he might get for us. Yes, certainly an idea. And it put me back in number one's good books. Yes, yes, it would. And unless I'm very mistaken, number 29, in that shed there's just what we need. What do they need? It's a box. All it is is a box. It's, it's, nothing, it's nothing fancy. The next morning, we're back with the kids, and the girls hope that Meba doesn't cause any more trouble because they're all going to end up in jail. Because Meba's already robbed a bank, and who knows what he's going to do next. Now, Meba overhears the girls sort of kind of complaining about his behavior, and it makes him sad, of course. The girls leave, and then number 40 shows up and tries to get Meba to tell him where the money is. Meba won't tell him. And then number 40 captures Meba by uh, telling him, well, if you get in this box, I will take the box in and then the kids can open it and you can jump out and surprise them. So Meba eagerly jumps in the box because honestly, Meba's a little kid like the rest of the little kids. So number 40 takes Meba back to the criminal lair and number one then demands Meba tell him where the money is, but Meba just keeps beeping. And back at the school, the kids are worried because they can't find Meba, but they think they might be onto something. I see. I'm sure Meba's trying to speak to us. I keep hearing the words help, help in my head. Isn't that strange? So do I. I think you two kids may be right. I've been hearing strange sounds in my head for some time. Listen. There it is. Help, help. Oh, I'm sure Meba's in danger. Yes, I can hear it. He's talking to me as well now. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Perhaps the police have gone in the bank and found him there. So the kids all split up and follow the psychic distress call. Sumac finds her way to the bad guy's hideout, and they chase her through the house. She successfully hides. The other kids come in. It's a big chase thing. Meba helps out by doing... <laughs> I don't know how to describe this by doing this thing where his eyes spin and he is either sending people backwards or he is rewinding time somehow. The the bad guys are running up the stairs, sort of a, a long sort of winding stairwell. They're, they're running upstairs. Miba's eyes spin. The guys sort of go back down the stairs through the magic of rewinding the film. Um, so... I'm not sure exactly what the mechanism here, but Meba is frustrating the bad guys, is what the upshot is. This allows the kids and Meba time to escape. Now, also, Meba has helped out by setting the house on fire, then calling the cops and hanging up to rouse their suspicion. The cops and, you know, a policeman investigates, they call the fire department. Meanwhile, the kids watch with glee as the bad guys fall all over themselves trying to put out the fire. The cops show up along with the fire department and arrest the bad guys. Apparently there's a warrant out for this gang and the kids are all getting a huge monetary reward. At this point, Miba decides to go home, but will miss the kids very much. And that's the end of the movie. I really liked this. It was, it was fun. It was, it was cute. It was, it was sweet. The kids were, were smart and, and did their job well. Miba was weird looking, but not weird looking enough to be disconcerting. The bad guys were suitably useless, um, and everything ends up well. It's it's not a deep piece, um, 
but with the the idea of of the saucers being something other than structured physical craft um i liked that i really liked the um the notion that uh, that that the aliens communicated telepathically i liked the the shout out to venus there in the solar system uh, this is a very 50s piece of science fiction stuff and not a um you know this island earth um day the earth stood still type of cinematic flying saucer thing this was it was it was interesting and oblique and the the only really thing i have against it is the uh, the direction was was not great it was not visually dynamic it was directed by guy ferguson who was born in 1920 um i'm getting this information from the uh, the bfi the british film institute and i'm i was sort of thinking that, that as i'm watching this that it really looks more like a uh an educational short than it does a film about gangsters and aliens and school kids and i know a lot about you know, industrial and educational shorts. I, I wrote a book about using these in the classroom as educational tools. I've seen a lot of educational shorts, and that's that's really how it, um, how it how it sort of came across to me. And so I looked up the uh, the other things that uh, that Guy Ferguson had had written or directed or produced from uh, 1956 onward, and um, there's there's a, a lot of great stuff. Uh, the cost of accidents. An Introduction to Concrete Technology. An Introduction to Concrete Technology, Part 2. An Introduction to Communition. The Nursing Care of the Unconscious Patient. Entropy. Emergency Resuscitation, Part 2. Seconds Count. Emergency Resuscitation, Part 3. Closed Chest Cardiac Massage. Um... Family planning, a medical approach, chronic bronchitis, a team affair, paving 65, a touch of rheumatism, screw fixation and compression plating, gas, how does it burn, um, pounds, slimming, and scents, uh, let's see, airborne pulse Doppler radar, parts one and two, thrombolytic therapy, transporting, safety by design, the elusive diagnosis, ground floor construction, <laughs> ground floor construction, colonoscopy, principles and technique. You get the idea here. This is not a man who has written or directed action-packed, pacey, plot-filled pieces of fiction. This is a guy who has directed industrial training shorts, and it really shows. Overall, though, I, I liked it. Um, I watched a lot of old British TV, as you might have picked up over the last few years. And um, I will say that the bank manager is uh, played by the same actor who played um, Horatio Chin, the obnoxious civil servant in the 1971 Doctor Who story, The Claws of Axos. So supersonic saucer in addition to adorable British children and a cute flying saucer alien guy uh, has that going for it. Next time, it's back to the contactees with Wayne Aho and Otis T. Carr. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thank you to those who've donated in the past. It's much appreciated. Um, 
We're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can also mail us things at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And The Saucer Life is, of course, available anywhere you can find podcasts. Yes, podcasts. So, interestingly... Um, the Bamboo Saucer, this is our next movie, The Bamboo Saucer. Its working title was Operation Blue Book. Hmm. Initially, it was a co-production with a Spanish company, but producer Jerry Fairbanks figured out how to shoot the movie just as cheaply in Hollywood on his own, so the wrangling over where the film would be shot and who would be financing it meant that it had a fairly lengthy gestation period of a couple years, um, which meant the script needed to be rewritten as geopolitical changes and ufological changes had occurred. Now, IMDb's plot summary of the film says the following. A flying saucer hidden in a red Chinese peasant village is sought by teams from the United States and the Soviet Union. On finding it, they band together to explore the saucer and take a trip into space. That is actually almost everything that actually happens in the film. So let's take a look at this. We start off with a test pilot, Fred Norwood, and he's flying the X-109, which is just a plain old F-104 starfighter. It's a jet, and he's up there in the sky with a chase plane. So during the flight, he finds himself being pursued by a UFO, which he has to you know, evade very, uh, very carefully. And, and we have, you know, sort of 1968-style aircraft maneuvering and stock footage to show us all this. Um, the scene shifts to, uh, to back on the ground, and the, uh, the, the people in charge of the, uh, the project talk to Blanchard, who's the Air Force pilot of the chase plane. And uh, Blanchard comes in, and he's freaked out a little. And the boss asked what happened up there, and Blanchard explains what they saw. Blanchard, where's Norwood? Oh, he's, uh, he's coming, sir. You were up there. What happened? Well, afraid I can't help you, sir. I was uh, looking the other way. What? Well, I was checking out that flash of light we saw. Oh, that? You mean the aircraft off course? Uh, no, sir. It turned out to be sunlight glitting off of a cold air layer or... Uh... Temperature inversion. Just our luck. You had to be chasing a mirage. Well, sir, it gave the impression of a flying object. Yes, yes. I love this. This is this is fun. Uh, the Air Force guy gives a tech, typical Air Force blow-off or rational explanation, take your pick, of some pilot sightings. It, it's, a, it's a temperature inversion. I would have preferred if they'd gone with lenticular cloud personally, but temperature inversion is, is, is classic. Norwood comes in, the, the test pilot comes in and maintains that he saw a flying saucer, 40 feet in diameter, shiny and metallic but nothing appeared on the radar. Norwood is incredulous that nothing was on the radar and, and insists that what he saw was not a mirage. I don't know what else to call it. It was a flying saucer. No mirage. Real. It was solid metal. The sun glinting off it. The sun glinted off it. Now, just a minute. Blanchard, tell us what you told us a few minutes ago. Norwood is hit with the inversion layer explanation, but he isn't having it and is insulted that he's accused of being hysterical. But the biometrics, blood pressure, etc. from the flight data are conclusive. Dude was freaking out. No more flights in the experimental 109 for Fred Norwood. 
We shift now to Norwood having cocktails with his sister and his best friend Joe, who's married to his sister. They look, he's married to Fred's sister. He's not married to his own sister. They look like the dollar store version of the Howells from Gilligan's Island. So Joe has a new laser radar, laser radar, and Fred wants to use it to track the saucer. I saw that laser radar you had. I'd like to have it. Along with the two operators, I'll pay them. I got 18,000 bucks in the bank. Wait, 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 wait. You just lost me. Well, somehow that saucer blacks out normal radio and radar communications. Something like the ionosphere blackout our astronauts go through. You mean to tell me that you think this, this saucer has set up a, an ionized cloud around itself? Yeah, that's what I figured. So now... Norwood is checking things out. He's flying around in a uh, P-51 Mustang equipped with this laser radar to the point where he is just exhausted. Do we see any of this? We do not. We return to the action with Joe and Joe's wife, Dorothy, uh, coming into the control room and something comes up on the radar and Joe decides to take off in the Mustang himself because he flew him a bunch in Korea. Flashing red light. Hard to make out. It's like the headlight of a car coming at you at night. But it's big. Big and it's round. I'm going after it. Northwood comes in, and he and Dorothy are viewing Joe's aircraft vanishing off the screen. So something bad happened. Um, you've got the classic radar screenshot of two dots converging. But before they converge... And only one survives. The the anomalous dot, the UFO, sort of spins around Joe's aircraft in, in sort of a, a circuit, sort of zooming around it, um, surrounding it, which is what Fred Norwood said happened to him when he was up in the experimental plane. So what happened to Joe? We haven't found the body yet, but I'm beginning to think it just disintegrated like the plane. Disintegrated? That's right. I've been investigating crashes for six years, but I've, I've never seen anything like this. Fetri's plane literally came apart in midair, like it was disassembled piece by piece. What was he doing up there anyway? He was chasing a UFO. So this bears some resemblance to the Thomas Mantell incident, uh, where the Kentucky Air National Guard pilot um, in, I, th I think, a P-51 Mustang, is chasing a UFO and his plane is disabled and crashes. Um, I don't believe Mantel's plane disintegrated piece by piece in midair, but the parallel is obviously there. So Norwood is then ordered to Washington, D.C., where he meets a guy named Frank Peters. Peters is part of an unnamed agency. Is it MJ-12? Who knows? It's unnamed. Peters believes Norwood and shows him a drawing of a UFO from intelligence sources based in communist China. Norwood, Peters, and two others will travel to China to investigate. And what's more, from the intelligence they have on the scene, the saucer wasn't empty. The bodies of two uh, creatures were found nearby, human-like and yet different. The peasants' description wasn't too intelligent. But we assume they died because they lacked immunity to Earth's bacteria. 
But they must have been oxygen breathers, or they wouldn't have ventured from the ship. That's purely conjecture, of course. The remains? The bodies decayed very rapidly, and the peasants cremated what was left. The peasants cremated what was left. Come on, what? What do you? What else do you expect? It's just, just sort of the, the like, duh, sort of tone in, um, in Hank Peter's voice. There always, uh, always gets me. So, obviously, with a situation like this, with a a downed saucer in an enemy nation, the stakes are high. That thing could be so scientifically advanced as to make our technology obsolete. And if the Red Chinese get their hands on it, the free world is obsolete. The free world is obsolete might be one of the the, the worst lines ever in moviedom. So they fly out there. It's it's Hank, it's it's Norwood, and it's a couple of technicians. They're met by a Chinese-American agent named uh, Sam Archibald, who leads them to the craft that's hidden in the ruins of a Catholic church. So because the communists had destroyed the Catholic church, the local peasants, who apparently were devout Roman Catholics, are happy to help out the Americans in, in sort of retaliation to the People's Liberation Army. So the group makes their way across country, evading the People's Liberation Army at various points. And at, at, there's, there's a scene, a pivotal scene, where Norwood stops at a river to fill his canteen. And he encounters a topless blonde woman washing herself in the river. And guess what? She's a Russian. Norwood is then confronted by a Soviet guy um, who's in charge who shoots at him and misses, despite the range being about 20 inches. The Russians are all wearing fur hats because, I mean, of course they are. They're Russian. After a brief exchange of fire, the two groups decide to join forces in investigating the saucer. They make their way to the church ruins and the otherworldly craft, which looks like every generic flying saucer you've ever imagined. At this point, the movie decides to engage in humor as a buzzing sound is heard by the Russian woman who is a scientist and an electronics expert. I heard noise inside. No, that's not inside. That's Jack's electric razor. Okay, maybe calling that humor was a bit optimistic. So they stare at the craft, and a circular hatch opens on the underside of the craft, and what they realize is that it was activated by the the frequency of sound emitted by Jack's electric razor. This is a real thing, folks. So they enter the ship, and it looks like... Honestly, any movie flying saucer you've ever seen, it, it, it's very terrestrial looking as far as technology goes. It's clearly scaled for human-sized beings. Uh, one cool thing, the occupants can see out of the saucer to the surrounding environment through transparent panels that look like solid metal from the outside. There's no seat belts or anything, which makes the Russian woman um, who's there think that the gravity management uh, that means people don't need to strap in is part of the overall life support system after a whole lot of standing around and talking for like 20 minutes there's some tension between the u.s and soviet teams that gets resolved when there's a shootout with the people's liberation army of the people's republic of china 
there's a shootout, many characters are killed, and we finally get some hot flying saucer action. Norwood, one of the other Americans, and the Russian woman survive the fight by escaping into the ship. The ship takes off without much of their own intervention, and they're leaving Earth as they struggle with the controls. In just these few moments, we've torn free of Earth's gravity and traveled thousands of miles. The moon! How could we have come so far in such a short time? Because this ship is approaching speed of light. Wow, they're going fast. As they keep moving, the humans try to figure out where they're going and how to take control of the ship. And as they do so, they're confronted by a giant red glowing something. The woman screams, because she's a woman, right? And then the thing, they miss the thing. I think it's an asteroid or something. Uh, they never say. Then we're back to watching them do math on notepads, and they're messing around with controls, and then they figure it out. Saturn. I've been observing it for the past 10 minutes. We're in a dead collision course. Not collision. The weight of Saturn's atmospheres are so immense that long before we hit anything solid, this ship will be crushed and compressed to the size of a baseball. So they're heading to Saturn. The planet has a really cool, trippy, purple, red, pink color scheme. Very 1968. Using calculations arrived at by the Russian, they gain manual control of the saucer, slingshot around Saturn, I think they never really say, and are headed back to Earth. After some tension about whether or not the saucer can handle re-entry into the atmosphere, the ship loses power and begins to spin out of control, but they stabilize it and safely enter the atmosphere. They glide over stock footage of snow-capped mountains and say they are heading for Geneva, because Switzerland is neutral, right? At this point, the audio on the copy I obtained from the Internet Archive gets choppy, but we're left with this tidbit as the American hero Norwood snuggles up to the Russian woman. He says, I will have to meet them face to face one day. All the nations of this earth better be ready to stand together. Amen. I'm just going to let this fade out here because this is nice music. So the film's final shot before the credits is a quotation from President John F. Kennedy. Let both sides invoke the wonders of science instead of the terrors. Well, that's nice. So, Supersonic Saucer. It's a film that you really get the impression watching it that more stuff should have happened, and whatever happened should have happened quicker. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of of sort of stagey sort of conflict. There's a nice little platitude sort of at the end. But for the most part, you really wish they would have gotten to the saucer earlier. They would have gone on board the saucer earlier. I really wish they would have met some aliens at some point. That would have been great. It would have been fun to get some contacty philosophy in there. It, it just seems like a lot of sort of missed opportunity here. And for that reason, I really did prefer Supersonic Saucer to Bamboo Saucer. Um, 
even though we have no indication that Miba the saucer was supersonic and the flying saucer in the second film was in no way bamboo. Apparently the bamboo reference is just there to remind us that it took place in China, which seems a bit stereotypical, maybe, probably, obviously. The cast of Bamboo Saucer is made up of people that you can't quite remember, but you know you've seen them a bunch of places. Dan Duria, uh, John Erickson, Lois Nettleton, uh, Robert Hastings, Vincent Beck, um, Bartlett Robinson. Bartlett Robinson was in everything. I just looked at his IMDb page and good grief, this guy was in everything from the the 40s to the mid-70s. He was there on television all the time. Um, everything from dramas to sitcoms to game shows. It's pretty amazing. So it's if you watch a lot of Mystery Science Theater 3000, Rift Tracks, Cinematic Titanic, that kind of thing, you have seen these faces in various films. And actually, I'm a big Mystery Science Theater fan, but I do have to say that that Bamboo Saucer is very much up that alley. It's a film that desperately thinks it is more competent than it actually is. I didn't hate it. Um, I liked Supersonic Saucer better. It was just more charming. But I thought Bamboo Saucer was, was fun. I just... I just wished more would have happened. Thanks for listening. In the show notes, you can find links to the films so you can check them out for yourselves. Let us know in the comments or on social media what you thought of these movies. And we'll share your comments on uh, probably a Saucer Afterlife at some point in the future. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you and filming it and making a low-budget movie that is being dissected in a Venusian podcast somewhere. <laughs>